Welcome to episode 340 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Friday 20th of October 2023. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. Our featured folks from BikeMap and Cycle.Travel, and now, in this third episode about cycle navigation apps, I talk with Zach Hamm, co-founder of Ride With GPS. I'm Carlton Reed, and I recorded this chat remotely. Zach did have a great mic, but he didn't have a pop filter. So there are a few slight plosives in the first half of the show, uh, but we did cure that in the second half. Now, tell me, you live in Eugene, but then go to work in Portland. Is that kind of right? Oh, no, that would be that's They're about 100 miles apart. I, I lived in Eugene for about nine years. That's where I met my wife. And that's where we started the company. But uh, I moved to Portland eh, about 10 years ago. So I'm in Portland now. I noticed there was there was there was definitely two centers. Um, you know, the original route was in Eugene, but clearly you've kind of so my, my question was going to be, really, is the fact that it's it's now in Portland or even then in Portland, is that the reason there is a bicycle app? Because Portland clearly is, is in certainly in, in North American terms, chocker with bicycles. You know, it's it's funny. That's a question that we get all the time. They're like, oh, Portland must mm. be a great, a great place to have an app for uh, mm. for cycling because there's so many cyclists there. But the truth is, uh, my, my partner and I both grew up in the Portland area. It's just kind of coincidental. And most, you know, we have a great audience of people that use our stuff in the in the Portland area, but it's not, it's like maybe in the top six cities in the US for us. So it's really not uh, central to the business. Interesting. And your your partner there is Cullen, Cullen King. Yes, exactly. And and he, he went to college in Corvallis, which is about 30 miles north of Eugene. So we actually started we started riding motorcycles together in high school and so the very very early days of uh of the product we were just programmers we liked working on software projects that was really the impetus and we did our first testing on motorcycles and we still have a contingent of you know dual sport and adventure riders who uh swear by our product you know 15 years later uh, and some of them have no idea that it's that it's really focused on cycling <laughs> hmm. Because I'm a motorcyclist, cyclist, you're going to have very similar routing uh, needs. Sure. It's not about going from A to B. Oftentimes you end where you start. You're just trying to go out on, you know, scenic, beautiful roads where there's not a lot of traffic. Um, On the motorcycle, you don't really care if you're going up or down hills, but you like like a curvy road. And the only reason Mm -hmm. to make a curvy road is typically because you're going up or down hills. So it ends up being very similar from the routing front. Mm. So 2007 was when you and these two motorcyclists fresh out. Were you fresh out of college or are you still doing it in college? 
Oh no, I was a I was a sophomore in college at the time, and actually we we started in two, late two thousand six. So yeah, quite quite a while back. So that's the same age as this podcast. <laughs> so you you know how you know how it feels. <laughs> yes, that's how long you, your product has been out there because this this podcast is a dinosaur in podcast terms. Um, so two thousand six, two thousand seven ish when it comes out. So why are you doing? It? What, what's what's the landscape here? Literally the kind of digital landscape. Why are you creating this? Why is there nothing like this out there? You know. 2006 and seven was just a different time on the internet, and and perhaps I was just a, a different age. So I was, uh, you know, young and naive, and had that kind of ignorant confidence that you have then, which is which is really a powerful tool because I had a boss who was a, a coach of a women's cycling team in Eugene, and he had been trying to get me into cycling, telling me how cool it is, I should stop riding my motorcycle and just you know get some exercise. And I finally took him up on the offer one day, went out on a pretty tough 30 mile ride, which for me was, was crazy. And, you know, I came back and I'm like, wow, that was incredible. But the thing that really stuck with me was he took this GPS unit. He had a Garmin 705 at the time, took it off his bike, plugged it into his computer and showed me the data that he had. And it was like, there was a line on a map, uh, show he had a barometric altimeter. He had a power meter at the time, which was pretty advanced, you know, a speed and cadence sensor, heart rate strap. He had all the technology at the time. And then I saw the software and I'm like, this software could be so much better. And what other sport in the world other than like formula one racing collects this much data, like mm. cyclists are a strange breed. And so as a programmer who was contemplating getting into riding, I was like, I have to do this because as a programmer, it's interesting. I didn't even care about bikes at first. I just was really interested in all the data people were collecting. So that was really the spark. And then looking at the competitive landscape, I mean, at the time there was uh, Map My Fitness, there's Map My Ride, and then there was also a company called Motion Based that eventually got mm -hmm. acquired by Garmin and turned into Garmin Connect. And mm -hmm. looking at those, you know, being that confident sophomore in college, I just shrugged my shoulders and was like, I could build something better. Like, you know, it was, that was how the internet was back then. There was just less money and everything. Things were less developed and, you know, a high school or a college student could really look at the landscape and say, eh, I could do that. Now I've seen the, the, so to research this, I kind of, I went on, on bike Portland. So that's where I got the, the articles. Yeah. Original one from way back when, uh, Jonathan Mouse has has done a review, and then the, the 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 later one where he's talking about you know you've been going for fifteen years. So I, I got some <laughs> of the kind of the biographical details, sure, and that's how I knew about Cullen on there, all that kind of stuff. So on 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 Bike Portland, um, uh, it it was basically talking about uh, where you've come from. And that was where my question was coming from also, by the way, for for for, for, for cycling. Because uh, yeah, if you're in Portland, that's why. And I would definitely like to circle back on on give us your, to your, your top cities. But on that, um, and on, on our coverage that uh, uh, Jonathan did of you, uh, I think it's you are saying you basically, you bootstrapped this and you always bootstrapped it all the way through in that you're self-funded. And tell me how many members of staff you have now? Yeah, we're... Just about 35 people at the moment. So that's a lot of people to be relying on your subscriptions. Yeah, it, uh, and, and we're hiring right now. So yeah, we've been, you know, we started the company just, I don't know that, I don't know, maybe maybe Cole and I put in 
a couple hundred bucks or something for hosting. I don't even remember at this point, but uh, yeah, we started in 2009. We asked people if, uh, you know, hey, you know, back then you'd see this more often, but we're like, oh, if you like what we're doing, you're welcome to donate to our PayPal, you know, buy us a cup of coffee, whatever. And, uh, you know, very quickly, we were getting about a, a thousand US dollars a month. And it just kind of struck us, okay, this this is starting to look like a business. And it, before that, it was just a hobby. You know, we worked mm-hmm. on it together quite often. And uh, and then in 2011, I was able to go full-time on it. And from then, it was just this sort of cycle of, oh, okay, we made some more money. Um, should we hire somebody? Should we, you know, buy another server? And just kind of rinse and repeat. And then, you know, coming into where we're at today, you know, we're still customer-funded, still profitable. And... Yeah, we have about 35 people and hopefully bring on a handful more uh, towards the end of this year and into next year. And I think right now is kind of the most exciting time in the business yet. We're, we have a really, really strong team. You know, everybody's into bikes. Everybody's passionate about the space. People have chosen us as an employer um, for very personal reasons. It's not just a job. And everybody kind of buys into our mission that we're focused on bikes, that we want people to get on a better ride mm. um, and just kind of staying really, really close to this niche that we're in and instead of trying to go broad and, you know, be everything for everyone. So when you when you got those first thousand bucks with via PayPal, <laughs> at that point you you must have thought, well, we need two levels here. We need a level that anybody can can use and then we we need the the subscription level. And is that when you started adding crazy features? Or is it always, oh, we need to add this feature? And then and then it's like, no, hang on, we've got to stop. We've got to stop. This is going to pay our wages here. Yeah, it's, you know, it actually took us a while to launch the paid account because we just had made everything free up to that point. And, you know, for us, it was really, we were never really focused on the business or the sales or the conversion funnel or all the kind of traditional software as a service stuff that uh, that you should be worried about, frankly. But for us, we just had all these people using our our uh, our site, and then they would email us and be like, "Hey, I have a Garmin 605, and I got this error," and that would be kind of our dopamine hit. We'd be like, "Yes, we're going to solve this problem for this person," and then they'd come back and say, "I went on an awesome bike ride, thanks." And that was really what drove us, and still drives us today. And then in terms of the money side, you know, we we identified some features that were speculative, these kind of this advanced analysis studio feature um, and a few other, a few other convenience things. And we're like, yeah, let's, let's launch a paid account and we'll, we'll have like, you know, syncing with the, the, there was a, a weight, an ant plus weight scale. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is obscure enough. We'll make this paid. And since then we've gotten a little bit more refined, but we still like to have a product that's really useful if you don't pay us. Uh, because ultimately, the people, whether you pay us or not, uh, you're you're part of our community. You're contributing back. Um, you know, if you go on a ride, then you could submit a review of the route that you did. That's going to help somebody else. Or you can sync your rides and help build out our global heat map and help people understand what roads are safe and popular to ride on. So it's not just about collecting money from people. There's also opportunity for you to contribute value back just by participating. Mm. So tell me, you, you kind of like touched on a few bits of, of, of uh, paid for, but tell me what what do you if I if I go on uh, via the app or, or I'm, I'm presuming on online as well on the on the on the the browser based version as well, what do I get as a 
as a, a fully paid up member and how much and, and are there levels? Yes. Yeah, so there's there's two levels that would apply to to you as a consumer. And then we also have uh, we have a program for organizations like bike clubs, mm-hmm. event operators, tour operators. That's that's a separate side of the business. But on the consumer side, we have two levels and we've tried to simplify this. Uh, but basically, if all you need or want are the features of the mobile app, which for us is our mobile route planner, uh, mobile navigation, offline maps, live tracking, uh, and then a few other a few other bits. But those are the main ones. It's really all about offline maps and navigation. That's what people that really seems to drive purchases on the mobile app. Then mm-hmm. that's sixty U.S. dollars a year. Um, you know, kind of in the middle and comparable to some of the other competitors. And then. If you also want to unlock the website, which is advanced route planning, some advanced analysis tools, uh, but ultimately it's really about that that route planner on the web, um, then it's $80 a year. And that gives you the mobile app and the web. So so it's for people who just care about the mobile app, 60 bucks, for people that want everything and really want to open up their computer and, and kind of use the Photoshop of route planners, as we like to think of it then it's that $80 level and we call that premium. Okay. Now, the way I, when I open up my phone to see where where the app is on on my phone, and you can hear my my dog in the background there probably, um, is actually a, a ride that uh, I did in, in Sardinia. 2002, in fact, but it's only just come out in the Daily Mail, the, the, so, the piece. Sounds and wonderful. I've, I've, <laughs> and I, I put, I think I sent you the link. So I put... Uh, uh, ride with GPS as a as a, a mention in that piece um, that came out yesterday. Um, uh, but that was basically a, a, a tour company, in this case Turismo of Italy, had paid for a group subscription, and then all the members of that um, of that that particular bike tour could then be fed information, be fed all the routes, and have everything on their smartphone for that particular. Um, bike tour. So that's how I've got it on my my, my phone already. Um, is is from that that tour. So how much does it cost a bike tour company, a club, an organization? What are they paying, and what are they getting? You know, so that's that's a part of the business that's that I've always been really proud of and happy with. Um, when we launched our what we call our organizations program, originally it was just the club account back in 2015. We were trying to find. We didn't want to charged nothing for it because we knew that if we charged nothing, then the incentives wouldn't be aligned. We wouldn't want to provide as much support or we wouldn't be able to justify it. Uh, But we also didn't want to charge very much because we wanted it to be utilized as much as possible. Because the ultimate goal, this is what we do instead of marketing, instead of spending money on banner ads uh, or, or what have you, or paying for Google AdWords, we take the money that we might spend there and we invest it into this organizations program so that somebody like you ends up with our app on on their phone and mm. you know some percentage of you afterwards will be like oh that was kind of cool that navigation worked well and hopefully we can let you understand you can also use this in your personal life so mm. it's this sort of like marketing channel but really it's this partnership with organizations so they pay us the base price is $250 a year which uh, again for the value that they get is pretty inexpensive and so as a result, you know, we have nearly 2000 organizations in that program, you know, a thousand of which are bike clubs. And 
you know, we just have tools that nobody else wants to build. It's a, it's frankly kind of an, an unsexy area on the software front, especially if you're a consumer focused company, because, you know, what's a bike club need? Like we have, we have bike clubs that have 5,000 routes and, you know, you need you basically need to build like a spreadsheet tool for them to manage this bulk operations, tags, all this kind of boring B two B stuff that uh, I think a consumer fo- focused company really doesn't want to build. And so we've kind of tackled those problems. And as a result, if you go on a tour with a company like Turismo, then they're going to say, "Hey, please install this Ride with GPS app," and you'll have this really slick experience where you can scan a QR code. You get into this branded portal for them. All you see are the routes you're going to do on your tour. You get to use navigation, and then in the end, we say, "Hey, you can also use this app in your personal life." Yeah, so that's why I've got it on there. Now, I'm going to we're going to cut for a break, but before we do that, um, I do want to come back to you and actually, I want to sort your microphone out um, because there's a few pops. So hopefully, in the ad break we can actually sort that out so there's not so, so, so many pops afterwards. So we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn understand that while a large cargo bike can carry oodles of stuff, many of us prefer something, well, a little more manageable. That's why they've come up with the HSDE cargo bike for folks with big aspirations to go car-free delivered in a compact size. With its rear shock to 80 kilos and a combined hauling capacity of 180 kilos, the robust new HSD is stable and easy to maneuver, even when under load. And with its Bosch e-bike system tested and certified to meet the highest UL standards for electric and fire safety, you'll be able to share many worry-free adventures with a loved one, whether it's your kiddo or nan. Visit www.turnbicycles, that's T-E-R-N, turnbicycles.com to learn more. Thanks, uh, David. And we are back with, with Zach, Zach Ham of uh, Ride With The GPS. And we had a, a, a WeChat there and and we've hopefully got uh, uh, Peter's pickled peppers uh, won't be such a problem uh, going forward. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I didn't want to stop uh, uh, Zach initially because it wasn't all the time. And it was just, you know, the odd little thing. And, and most of the audio was absolutely fantastic, but it's just the odd little pops. Anyway, I think we've sorted that. So Zach, what, when when I'm back, um, I, I you came in uh, uh, when we started the, the the recording. You were telling me that Portland, and this was surprising. This is very surprising. But maybe this is indicative of something. So so let's let's dig into that. Portland was not uh, is it with your was it your sixth highest? So it's not your it's not the biggest. Um, or not even the second or third biggest use uh, of where your heat map is 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 in uh, bringing up routes routes uh, in the US. So so a how come is that a surprise or is that like indicative? Because when you read Jonathan Mouse's uh, articles, you realise that you know Portland, Oregon was fantastic maybe 10 15 years ago and has since you know gone downhill in many respects since then so is it indicative of that or would you think it always have been at that level no that's kind of how it's been the whole time and you know it's not it's not really an indictment of portland um as a great place for cycling because on a percentage basis it's it's a very high performing city for us. So in terms of how, you know, of our registered users, how many of them are active and engaged, how many of them have found enough value to pay us, Portland performs 
very, very well. But just as a population center, it's simply not as big as you know Seattle, Boston, the New York area, the LA area. So it's really that perspective of you know if we're going to be thinking of regional centers to uh, to be kind of focused on, have on our radar, to be engaging with sort of the influential clubs and organizations in those areas, then you know Portland, yes, it's important. It's on the list. It's where we live as well, which makes it especially kind of near and dear to our hearts. But you know. It's not one of the biggest cities in the country. It's really a, a mid-sized city, and we have many of those in the U.S. And in terms of you know how it's changed over time, it's obviously being in Portland. We because of all the news, especially since you know uh, since since COVID, since 2020, uh, the reputation of Portland has really gone downhill. You know, I don't know if you ever. We're exposed over there to the show Portlandia, but that kind mm. of put oh, yeah. that kind of put Portland on the map as being this mm. quirky, weird, fun, mm. safe place. And uh, and the reality is has always been a little bit different from that. And so, you know, people that live here, I think, are now a little bit on the defensive because you know they go to Thanksgiving dinner to the East Coast to go back with their family. And all they have to do is kind of fend off this barrage of, you know, <laughs> I hear Portland's on fire. It's terrible. And it's like, yeah, Portland has a lot of problems and they're and they're very serious. A lot of the West Coast cities do. Mm. Uh, but at its core, you know, I can still ride my bike to work. We still have our bike infrastructure. Um, and for the most part, it's, it's a wonderful time over here. Uh, it's just... Yeah, it could. It's seen better days, and I hope that uh, you know the city gets its act together and sorts sorts things out in a humane and fair manner. But Portland's still a great place. Basically, it's the it's the demographics size rather than um, the number of uh, hardcore cyclists. So you're just going to get more people in a bigger place. Basically, sure. that's so that's where are your top cities then. Yeah, so I mean, Portland punches above its weight class. I think is another way mm. to to think of it. Okay, but yeah, yeah. yeah for us, uh, you know, Seattle, Boston, you know, the L.A. area, uh, the New York area, those are all those are all really big. It's kind of even the Chicago area. Although as we head into winter, that'll that'll go down quite a bit. Um, so it's it's kind of the obvious places just by population. Uh, as long as people ride bikes there, then in the U.S. we're really well known. We're really strong. We have a presence. Uh, in, in most places, we're kind of the default, like the expected app to be used by event organizers or by bike clubs. Mm. And consequently, we've kind of gotten our way into the cycling community throughout the US. Uh, and then, you know, when you go outside of the US, you have different experiences, right? In some some countries or some areas, uh, we're really not that popular. And then in some areas, there's these pockets where everybody's using us. So uh, that's kind of the the emerging story for for our opportunity. When you you pay that sixty bucks or eighty bucks if you want like the the you know the getting behind the the scenes on the on the browser based version, and you're getting all the bells and whistles, you've got to be pretty hardcore. To be going into that, that that kind of depth. So, can you see which of your users are riding so much, are updating, you know, their app so much, and, and and you classify them as hardcore, probably athletes, maybe if they're riding that much. And how many are more recreational? Say they'll just do something like at the weekends. And do you classify? Do you do you ever? I mean. 
I'm asking you a question here that maybe you wouldn't want to answer. Just how much of the data you do you dig into? But if it's if it's if it's anonymized data, then it's, it surely isn't a problem. So, so are you digging into the data to find out who your users are? Is what I'm, is my question? I guess. Yes and and no. Like honestly, the question that you just asked, I think a lot of this information um, would be incredibly valuable to use to tell you what routes you might want to ride. So for us on a product basis, being able to give you your next great bike ride, or at the very least, make sure that your next ride is better and you ride a little more often, that's really our job. And uh, we would be able to do that much better the more that we know about your riding. So I Hmm. certainly have no qualms about thinking in terms of like wanting to know more about you as a cyclist, uh, because I think that's in your best interest. But in terms of, you know, what data we're collecting and how we're sort of partitioning our users, it's really not as sophisticated as it should be, frankly, because the for the most part, for the most of companies' history, we've really been focused on talking to our users. We have like a really, uh, really well-known and renowned customer support team. We've invested in that side of the business, especially since we work with all these organizations. We're on the phone a lot. Uh, we answer many, many, many support tickets very, very quickly and very knowledgeably. And so we bring all of that qualitative information to bear when we're developing the product. And then of course we watch uh, usage of the product, you know, in a broad fashion to say, okay, you know, how much are these features being used versus this other feature just to calibrate our intuition. But, you know, really to answer your question, I wish we knew a lot more than we do. And we're going to kind of move in a direction where it's not just serving our interests so that we can be behind the scenes and tinkering and kind of managing all of your data. It's really going to be more of this cooperative and upfront thing where we're asking you, what type of writing do you want to do? Because it's not just about your behavior that we're observing. It's also about your aspiration because maybe you really want to get into gravel riding, but you haven't done it before because you didn't have anybody to do it with and you don't know what a safe and reasonable route is. And so we should probably be giving you recommendations about your aspirations and not just your past. And... Um, you, you you do have a, a turn by turn. Turn by turn is in the paid version, yeah. Is in the subscriber level. Yes, correct. Yeah, you get voice voice turn by turn navigation, and uh, and it's it's funny. This started out because we got so frustrated with Garmin units, and we and we love Garmin. We love we love their units. Uh, same with Wahoo. They make an incredible head unit. So I have nothing bad to say about any of them. But uh, at least a long time ago, with a Garmin unit, you would set a route out, and it would be a loop. And maybe it was like a lollipop. So the the first section you would come back on and frequently it would just shortcut the whole thing. And then it would say route complete and you'd have to go and restart navigation. And we thought that was so silly. It's like my goal isn't to get to the finish line. It's to do the whole route. And that really was one of the things that inspired our navigation. So, you know, for us, we make sure if you go and say, I want to go and do four loops of this section of the route, we make sure you do four loops of it. Um, but if you do three loops and you cut off early, then we recognize that and we'll move you forward on the route. Uh, but it's it's a very specific and nuanced take on navigation where we recognize that people actually want to do the route that they planned, even if there are shorter and more efficient ways to get to the finish line. And then that's an athlete user, presumably. Uh, we don't, yeah, we don't think in terms of, 
I guess I didn't come, my partner and I didn't come from the competitive cycling world. And so for us, I don't know, we don't think of ourselves as athletes. Mm. And yeah, there's certainly members of the team and members of our audience that do consider themselves athletes. So I'm not disparaging that, but uh, no, I mean, I can go out and ride a hundred miles, but I don't think of myself as an athlete. Uh, for me, I just, I think bikes are something special. You know, you can combine really cool endurance, exercise, performance, all that stuff with a really great social setting, enjoy nature, have a little adventure, get a little adrenaline rush on the downhill. And like that whole experience is really what we're focused on. So the people that use our product kind of our best, our favorite user, the person who is really, really digging into all the details and the nooks and crannies and using it every day are really more on the adventurous side where they appreciate novelty. You know, they don't want to just go, a lot of the athletes might go and do the same loop every weekend or, mm. you know, the same training ride. And frankly, for them, maybe, maybe training peaks or Strava is a better, a better use of, uh, of their, of their time or their money, because if they already know exactly where they're going, we don't necessarily have a lot of uh, differentiating things to offer them. But for us, if you want to go on a new ride, a more interesting ride, you want to mix it up, you want to travel somewhere and go on the best possible ride with the time you have, that's really our sweet spot. So if I land in Paris, for instance, I get up one of the train stations uh, and I've got to get across town and I don't know my way about, am I going to be using a ride with GPS? Am I going to be firing up your app on my phone? Yeah, absolutely. And I've and I've done exactly that. Yeah, that's a that's a great use of it. I use it every time I travel. And uh and when I'm traveling with my wife, my goal is not to uh, you know, shill my own product to my significant other. Like that's not my objective. My objective is to make sure that she still likes bikes afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and I I always do rely on our product. And then I come back and I report a bug or two and and frankly, I rave to the team about like how awesome it was that I was able to go there and ride like a local with very minimal effort go on this wonderful bike ride that I just couldn't have done without mm. a piece of software like ours. So ride like a local. So that that's good. So you basically, so the heat map shows you that or the curated ride shows you that. Just like, This is where a local would ride. They probably wouldn't go this route, even though that looks like a sensible route on a map. So you, you, you bring up on a, 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 a map and you think, well, that's, that's probably the way to go. And then you kind of refer to yours like, well, actually, most people are going that route. Is, is that is that how you describe it? That's how people are using it. That's that's one piece of it, and the heat map. I, I feel that the heat map is uh, is a tool you can use to kind of get a baseline. You know, hey, I'm not riding. I'm not riding like I don't know anything. But you know, the most popular roads aren't necessarily the way to go all the time because you might have a commuting corridor uh, where it's a fine place to ride. But perhaps if you're doing a recreational ride, you really don't want to be on there. You want to be on this less popular section that goes out of town and, and does this nice big loop. Uh, maybe it's more scenic. Maybe there's a hill and the commuting one doesn't have a hill. There's a lot of reasons why you don't just want to follow the most heat on a heat map. And for mm. us, you know, we don't think that... Uh, you know, we can be like the smart people behind the scenes with the algorithms and the software and just come into your community and say, these are the best rides. Like we've never believed that we know more than people on the ground, especially working with the most knowledgeable route planners in an area, all these people that run bike clubs or run bike tours. So for us, we want to build software to support 
those people and build build these advocates that have the authority locally so that they can go out and say, hey, these are the best routes. This is the best way to string these things together. So instead of here's just another map, you know, sure, it's a heat map, but it's just another map. Choose your own adventure. Um, you can come and use our tools to look at a map and say, oh, here's if I pick any of these five routes, like I'm good. This is going to be a great time on a bike. It'll be a varied experience. You know, I'm going to start at a coffee shop and see a nice local cycling friendly business, get out of town, have a nice viewpoint, have a nice challenging climb or whatever. And you can select your filters on, do I want, you know, all paved or some unpaved? Do I want a lot of climbing? Do I want it to be short or long? And our goal is to just give you instead of 10,000 routes and a heat map of a million options, we want to give you just a few options. Uh, so that you have a little bit of variation, but ultimately like, just like a friend would do. So they say, Hey, this is the route you want to do. You know, I'm not going to give you 25 ideas. I'm just going to tell you, go do this one. Here in the, in in Europe, um, maybe it's very different in America. I mean, it's certainly in the UK where we're big into ordnance survey maps, um, but they were never kept as actually as up to date as the map I'm going to mention, which is OpenStreetMap, which, which powered, literally powered um, loads and loads of, of navigation businesses. Was OpenStreetMap uh, that important to you to begin with? I mean, how important was it? it, it I, I, I might be right in thinking it was, it's always been generally more important in Europe than in North America. It's certainly been more more updated uh, in Europe than in in North America. Like in in Germany, it, you, you're down to you know street lamps, you know individual street lamps are on on, on OpenStreetMap. Just a crazy amount of detail from from techie people just volunteering. So how important back in the day was OpenStreetMap to you and how important is it to you now? Yeah, originally OpenStreetMap just wasn't, like you said, it just wasn't there in mm. in the US. Um, we were, you know, on the sidelines cheering it on and we're really excited about it. We love, we love those kind of open source style projects. And uh, yeah, we're, we were big fans of OpenStreetMap since the very, very early days, even though it didn't make for the best product for us. And so we've always believed in just using the best tool for the job uh, at the time and being open to changing that. So when we first had the route planner out, JavaScript was too slow in web browsers. So it was Flash-based for, mm-hmm. for the members of your audience that remember uh, you know, Flash on the web, it's gone now. Mm-hmm. But so we've gone through many you know, technology cycles and also these, these cycles of data where originally it was Google Maps was kind of the only provider that could do the job. Uh, and then as soon as OpenStreetMap started to become useful, one of the first things that we did with it was I don't know if you recall, this was also a long time ago, but uh, with the old Garmin units, you could put in an SD card, a map card to get mm. base maps and you would buy a Garmin unit and it would not have base maps. And it was a really complicated process to get the OpenStreetMaps database onto one of these map cards. Mm. And so we had some users that were asking us about this and we started a little side business out of it. I think we had, we sold, I don't know, thousands of these map cards from our website so that Garmin users could have base maps based on OpenStreetMaps. Uh, so that was kind of our first experience with OpenStreetMaps as a business. And since then, we've built out, you know, a, a bunch of servers. We host uh, a lot of infrastructure that's uh, based on OpenStreetMaps. We have, you know, a vector map server and we have uh, a server to go. You can type in like the name of a city or an address and go look it up against our servers there. And we have routing servers that are based on OpenStreetMaps with other data so that you can, you know, get your point A to point B routing. So 
so we yeah we love OpenStreetMaps and we rely on it more and more and more as time goes on. And because one of the reasons I was asking that is because OpenStreetMaps has kind of got like um, sometimes if you're using OpenCycleMap, the version of OpenStreetMap that's for bikes, uh, there's a surface level, there's a surface layer, um, which you can you can then you can then work out you know which part of your your route is 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 gravel, which is dirt, which is which is paved, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So you, you've got a in in 2021, I see here in in your your um, linear progress was when you added surface types. So uh, surface types, are they submitted by users, by members, or is that something that you're pulling it in, you're pulling in the data from elsewhere? Uh, we're pulling that in from OpenStreetMaps. And, you know, there's, it's it's complicated though, because the way that things are tagged in the OpenStreetMap database, you know, in one area, something might be tagged in a way that you have to infer, okay, if, if it has this tag, but that tag, then it's actually paved in th the state of California. <laughs> but if it has these other two tags, then well, it's then it's unpaved or what have you. So, you know, similar to your, your conversation with with uh, with Richard uh, from Cycle Travel, mm. you know, the way that he was talking about how they have country by country routing and and everything based on just different usages of the OpenStreetMap database that vary by region. Um, you know, I, I, that's kind of exactly how we think about surface type. It's just trying to understand how people are using OpenStreetMaps in their community and doing our best to simplify that down. You know, you know, in Germany where they have every street lamp, they also differentiate mm -hmm. between, you know, uh, gravel or brick or dirt or single track or these, uh, you know, a grassy path. And it's up to us to to narrow that down to what cyclists on our platform really care about, which is, look, is it paved or is it unpaved? And sometimes answering that question is a little a little more complicated than just this binary yes or no. So tell me, what what, what other maps do you have? To tell everybody what, what you can actually choose from when you when you go in, you can say, right, for this particular route, you might want this particular map. You know, there's, there's, there are times when you just want different maps for different things. I, that's me. I don't know. I, maybe that's just me. Um, what, what maps have you got? No, it's not not just you. We've always supported, you know, the maps that people are asking for. So we have our own uh, our own vector map that we've put a lot of time into. We actually recently recently launched a new version of it, and we call it RWGPS Cycle, and uh, and it's, it's quite nice actually. It brings all the cycling infrastructure out, um, you know, lets people see peaks, uh, kind of de-emphasizes the motorways or the the highways that mm. people might not want to ride on. So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great cycling map and that's our default. But then we have the suite of maps from Google, their map view, their satellite view. A lot of people really like switching, you know, between our map and the Google satellite view because it's, yeah. it's a really good satellite view. And if you're doing adventure riding, uh, you can... If we don't have surface type data, you can double check with satellite and say, oh, you know, that doesn't look very mm. paved. And then we also have some of the OSM uh, ones. We have the OSM, the standard OSM map, the OSM cycle map, uh, the mm. OSM outdoor map um, uh, that comes from uh, Thunder Forest. It's a, a really great company that makes some really nice map styles. We have mm -hmm. a topo map from Esri, 
which is a lot of people like because it's really crisp and clean and has a lot of detail, especially for people that are going kind of into the backcountry. They appreciate those contour lines on the on the topo map and the extra information that's on there. And then we also have um, maps from the U.S. Geological Survey, which you know aren't as relevant over where you're at, but in the U.S. These are to some people sort of like how you view your ordnance survey maps, um, at least when it comes to when you get out of the populated areas. They're, they've been around for a long time. You know, they're built by the government. There's a lot of great detail in those. And we have some old uh, scans of the raster maps that provide, you know, a certain level of detail. And then we also have their newer vector topo uh, maps, which, you know, provide a different level of detail and represent it in a different way. And are they, you can toggle through them if you're a paid member or if you're, that, that's, that's with the, 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 the no pay subscription. No, yeah, we, no let, we let everyone Never. do that. And when it comes to uh, our paid or unpaid options in the, in the route planner, it's really, you don't really hit, uh, you don't run into limits or where we require a paid account until mm. you do some of the more advanced stuff. So for us, kind of like layers in Photoshop, you can have multiple routes on the map at the same time. We call it, you know, multi-route editing, and that's a paid feature. But if you just want to go click, 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 make yourself a nice route, save it and go ride it, uh, you can do all that for free. Mm. See, I'm a, I'm a historian, right? And uh, the early days of motoring was very much like this. You'd go for pleasure rides. This is this is what people are doing. They're going for pleasure <laughs> bicycle rides. And that's what you used to do in a car. You used to go for pleasure uh, motor car uh, rides. And and you can imagine, you know, in the very late 1890s, certainly in the early 1900s, you know, if this app was available, then the early motorists would have been all over this thing. But you're not going to get a motor, maybe a motorcyclist, yes, but you're not going to get a motorist doing this. So this, your, your kind of core customers are basically doing this. They're very geeky, probably, and they're doing this for pleasure. Whereas if you're downloading, you know, a sat-nav app as a motorist, you're going to be using that for probably not actually that pleasurable in, in many times to, to, to drive places. Whereas you're offering a product that's actually a very pleasurable, pleasurable thing to be doing. We'd, we'd like to think so. I mean, that's, that's why we all, well, not all of us all the time, but that's why I like to think we all come to work with a smile on our face is because <laughs> that's when we deal with, uh, when we deal with a customer or anybody that's using our product, you know, most of the time they're really doing something that's cool and we're helping enable that. Uh, we've, you know, it's so great when we hear from people who will write in and say, you know, I just did this Transamerica route and I don't know how mm -hmm. I would have done it without you guys, you know, without your, without your software, without the data that I was able to get from, from Ride With GPS. So that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing. You know, we think bikes are a special thing where you get outside, which is more and more rare these days. You know, you're with people like real human beings in real life, which we also think is more rare and a special thing. And you get some exercise, you get, you get to move through space. It's a very human activity. So uh, we hope that people, you know, we hope people cycle for, for, you know, to get to work and to go get their groceries and do all that. We're big supporters of, of cycling in general, but really our, our focus is people who go out and want to do this recreationally, go on an adventure, have fun with friends. And, uh, and just don't want to have a, don't want to have an undesirable experience. You know, a lot of people do want to go out and take risks and go on that adventure mm -hmm. where they really don't know exactly what's going to be around the next corner. And 
they love our software too. But you know, I'll know that we're really being successful when somebody who's very risk averse, who really doesn't want to get into trouble, who wants to know exactly what they're going to do, goes on a ride that they've never been on before, where nobody they're with knows more than they do. And it's because our software kind of gives them that confidence, gives them that comfort that they can go and do something new and know that they're not going to run into trouble. Mm. Now, before we were talking about how you're bootstrapped and how you had 30 plus members of, of staff and you've been profitable since since the, the, the time you, 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 you were taking fees, basically. But then you've also just... Um, recently, and we were talking September is, is my, my story here. You, you've got, um, three million dollars from an undisclosed strategic investor. So those are always things where you, you ask people and they won't tell you because if it's not on the news story, they, people don't want to tell you, which is fine. Uh, unless you do want to tell me. Um, but I, I my question is going to be, what are you going to do with that money? What, what, what features, what, what expansion is, is that money going to be funding? You know, that's, yeah, it's, it's one of those funny things when I was bringing this news back to, back to our team, you know, because our roots are in, are in being bootstrapped. We've always been very proud of that. Mm. And so thinking about like, well, I haven't changed. My partner hasn't changed and we're bringing on this new partner. So, you know, what's, what does that, what does that mean? Like, why would we have done this? Like, how do people kind of understand this? The truth is we've been working with this guy since uh, 2020. His name's Jason Eckenroth. He's like a super fan of our product. He's been a paid user since 2016. And uh, and I, he's been kind of a mentor, frankly, to me for the past three years. And he's been wanting to get involved in the business. He's had hmm. a successful software startup in the past. Right now, passion is his cycling. It has been for many years. Um, he's based in Europe, which is a market we know, you know, we don't know enough about and we're very interested in. So he's just been like a great friend, mentor, somebody who gives a lot of professional advice. And we've been trying to figure out a way for him to have a seat around the table, to welcome him in as a partner so that he can spend more time with us and really help us do what we're already doing better. And so we figured out a way to do that where he could be a minority partner. Um, uh, but if you haven't been there since the beginning and you're not working a full-time job and getting equity, how do you become a partner? You have to buy your way in. And so, mm. you know, it really isn't about the money. It's about the partner. And so it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with the money? Nothing right now. We're, we're profitable. Uh, we were planning on hiring 10 more people, you know, toward the end of this year and in early next year before we planned on welcoming him on. And we don't want to just blow the company up with a bunch of new staff. So we're really not going to change our plan at this point. So maybe an opportunity will come up and we'll be we'll have a little more comfort to take advantage of that, you know, we'll have a little more courage. Uh, but that opportunity hasn't come up yet. So we'll okay. see. I mean, we have the future I, I think is really opportunistic for us. There's a lot of things we can do, so it'll be nice to have a little more courage, but really it's about the guidance of of him as an individual. And presumably the, the the meetings when it's behind around the table are like Zoom meetings if he's in Europe. He was actually down here last week and I'm gonna go I'm gonna go out there and visit him uh here pretty soon as well. So we'll be getting together in person um pretty frequently. And and again, that's you know, it wouldn't probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for that to be happening if he wasn't an actual partner in the business. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. I think it's gonna be really exciting. 
So how big, if you got brought in a European investor, how big are you outside of the US? I mean, how, how much of a focus have you had else, you know, outside of the US previously? And maybe, will that change? Well, our, yeah, the majority of our customer base has always been based in the US. And, you know, we actually have a quite quite a large contingent of, of users in the UK. Um, and then other other English speaking areas, you know, so we have quite a few quite a few users in Australia, for example, a uh, good contingent in South Africa and, and and whatnot. But you know, our uh, our penetration into like France, Italy, Germany, um, you know, even even the Netherlands and and whatnot is it could be a lot better. That's for sure. And we have quite a few users over there just by number, but in terms of compared to the opportunity, it could be a lot more. And uh, so our focus mostly over there has been with our tour operator partners. And so really, the honestly, a lot of the people that we've supported in Europe are Americans who are going overseas on these, on these uh, week-long bike tours. And so we get a lot of usage over there. It's just usage um, from people who are traveling, who are having this curated experience. So that's been most of our experience in that market. Whereas in the US, we're very integrated into like the local cycling scene by virtue of these partnerships with bike clubs and uh, people that are running events. Yeah, that, that Sardinia event I mentioned was, was all American. <laughs> I was there. Well, no, there was two Brits, but were, we were both journalists um, on on the, the on the trips. So everybody else was, was Americans, and America. It's an Italian company, um, but as far as I can see, most of their clientele are are, are Americans. I guess that's why they've used uh, Ride with GPS because that's that's more familiar to to Americans. Now, obviously, this I want to end now. But normally, I would I'd ask people, you know, what's the URL? Where can we get more information? But it's kind of obvious <laughs> what your URL is, um, and and like I'm I'm sure absolutely your Instagram's the same. Everything is probably exactly the same. It's just, yes, it, it is. We we really don't have to discuss <laughs> what the URL might be. But how about you personally? Are you on social media in your own right, or is it always going to be you're a corporate person and that's that's you'll only find Zach as as ride with GPS? No, I'm I'm. Uh... You know, I don't post much on anything, but but I'm certainly out there. You know, people are welcome to email me directly. That's Z-A-C-K at ridewithgps.com. I always welcome a nice email. Uh, or, you know, you could follow me on Instagram. Maybe I'll post something. I think my most recent video is uh, me skateboarding. So you can mm -hmm. see that I don't just ride a bike. Uh, and it's Zach Ham as well. So, yeah, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm kind of... I probably have a Twitter or X account or whatever they're calling it now that I that I don't use, but I'm reachable through all those places. Thanks to Zach Ham there, and thanks to you for listening to episode 340 of the Spokesman Podcast, brought to you in association with Turn Bicycles. Show notes and more can be found at the-spokesman.com. The next episode features an upbeat chat with Carla Frankham, who talks candidly about her knockers. That is her social media critics, of course. Uh, that show will be out early next week. But meanwhile, get out there and ride.